my understanding of the psychedelic experience, and this is largely informed by the Jungian perspective, is that there's a boundary between what Jung called the conscious mind, not even the conscious mind really, but the ego, the realm of consciousness within the psyche, and then the unconscious, which is everything else. There's a boundary between those two realms, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And in the psychedelic state, that boundary is softened and becomes more permeable or weakened, or it retracts altogether. And so you have this uprush of unconscious content, the complexes, the imagery, the symbolism, the archetypal energy, all this stuff coming into consciousness. I think all of that is a concrete aspect of reality. It's just that in ordinary human consciousness, it's just not something that the majority of people are naturally tuned into. So are you in Jamaica right now? I'm not in Jamaica right now. I'm on the East Coast right now. I'm waiting mm -hmm. for, um, I filed for a work permit to live in Jamaica long term. So I'm waiting for that to be processed. And they have this weird rule where Americans can't be on island while their work permit is being processed. Ah, like, okay. If you're from Canada or Mexico or Australia, it's fine, but huh. Americans can't. So yeah, I'm staying with family on the East Coast and uh yeah, I'm just I'm I'm in like this state of limbo of before I can go back, but probably like gotcha. January or February. Cool. So last time we spoke, I think you were just finishing your masters or you just finished your masters. I don't know. I was about exactly. halfway through at that okay. point in twenty twenty one. Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about the collective unconscious and, and some uh some Jungian yeah. takes on it. Um yeah. but how did you end up in the psychedelic therapy thing? I didn't, uh, I, I missed something in between. Yeah. I mean, that was, I, I heard, um, I mean, the, the way that I ended up at this place, I heard a podcast and the CEO was being interviewed mm -hmm. and he was talking a lot about how Jungian psychology and those sorts of frameworks are really useful in the psychedelic space and they try to implement those as much as possible hmm. in their work and so that got my attention obviously i was studying a lot of that i think i was in the midst of writing my thesis at the time and so i was really deep in a lot of the research and so yeah it, it really caught my attention and psychedelics have always it's always been something that i've wanted to work with as a facilitator mm -hmm. because they've played such an important role in my own story. I mean, I think, I mean, we, we initially met in California, but in 2013, before I moved to California, I had a whole kind of, I call it my um, rigorous experimentation phase with mm -hmm. LSD that kind of spawned the idea of moving to California and kind of leaving my job and, doing the whole thing that I ended up doing. And we crossed paths after that, but that's, that's a big part of my story. And so working with psychedelics and, and helping people through those processes has been really important for me. And it's, it's been super gratifying to actually be doing it mm -hmm. in, in Jamaica. Cool. I, uh yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I don't know why I never thought of it before being both. I've also been greatly impacted by psychedelics uh, and then also really into Jung. It just seems to make a lot more sense than other frameworks um, mm -hmm. just because of the symbolism focus and the unconscious and, you know, dream interpretation is not that different, at least as far as I can tell, than uh, plant I don't know what the term is these days, but hallucinate like a uh, substance driven hallucination. Like it's, it's you're entering a dream state right. on purpose. So that's cool. That's cool. I think that uh, modern psychology is moving in that direction. Yeah. We hope, we hope there's a long way to go and it's mm -hmm. by no means a straightforward or self-evident like integration, but um, yeah, that that's one of the things that, this place is that we're is trying to do is to is to kind of bridge the balance between the mystical shamanistic the non-ordinary states that come with the psychedelic experience but frame it in a clinically rigorous and contained way that's amenable and relatable to 
Western culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's tricky and it's challenging, but there's, there's exciting things happening for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I had, um, a, uh, my friend Vicente who runs Iboga quest in Mexico. I mentioned him to you in a, in a voice mm-hmm. note, I think some time ago, he's a psychotherapist who, uh, now has like a boga retreats and I think other kinds of like MDMA retreats and stuff. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, that bridging of spirituality and like modern psychology, uh, is just cool. But the, the Jungian thing I think is really interesting because I, I don't know his, uh, his exact, uh, I, I know some of his spiritual background, but, um, just the idea of like bringing in the, the concepts of archetypes and a lot of the shamanistic beliefs of like meeting the goddess or meeting the spirit of the plant. Mm-hmm. It just seems like a very, uh, much more smooth, um, transition, I guess, between schools of thought than, yeah. than Clint, like, like non Jungian clinical psychology. Right. Which is like so disorder based. And then right. what, what's going on when I feel like I'm speaking to the grandmother when I'm right. on ayahuasca, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's interesting because even in the field of psychology, like depth psychology and Jungian stuff in particular has always been on the margins and has always been maybe not entirely dismissed, but treated with abundant skepticism and I mean, I think in a lot of cases, outright dismissal. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, even when he was alive, even when he was publishing his writings, um, you know, people were just criticizing him outright for ideas like archetypes and mm-hmm. accusing him of being a mystic and trying to start a religion, um, which, you know, there's, I feel like that's the case with any kind of momentous thinker like mm-hmm. he was, but, um, it's always been the case in psychology that the, the Jungian framework has kind of been on the margins and itself hasn't really been integrated into psychology in the West, um, for all those reasons. So it's, it does seem like it makes sense that, like you said, it's kind of the natural perfect connecting link because it's, it does have its roots in the clinic and rigorous scientific um, experimentation mm-hmm. in the sense of in the sense of trying to approach the vast mysteries of the unconscious diligence as possible and mm-hmm. taking it seriously at the same time and not dismissing it outright, which is what the majority of mainstream science scientific approaches do. Yeah. So, so you did one, uh, like one work stint in this, it's like a, uh, um, was, what's, uh, it's like a detox center in Jamaica or. Uh, So it's, it's, it's like, um, I wouldn't say it's a, it's not a detox center. It's, um, it's, it's like a wellness retreat. Okay. So people come down for about a week at a time and they do a series of three dosing sessions with that alternate with integration days of what, um, of what, and we use Medicine psilocybin. Mushroom. So okay, psilocybin cool. mushrooms. Yeah. Uh huh. And uh, what is the process like for you? As a as you're the facilitator, right? Or you mm-hmm. just do integration? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So oh. facilitators, we. So it's it's a it's a group process. That's one of the core fundamental things. So people come down, and we have groups between eight and twelve typically. Mm-hmm. And the facilitation team, there's. Typically, there's a ratio of maybe one facilitator for every two guests or so, depending on the size, mm-hmm. you know, that, that could shift. But um, it's a really high ratio. So we have, there's a lot of individualized attention and we work pretty closely with people and we're participating in the group in the sense that we're sharing all the meals together with guests mm-hmm. where, you know, everybody has free time in the off days. Um And then during the dosing days, we have enough facilitation team to spend one-on-one time with people if they need it, Mm -hmm. while at the same time encouraging and kind of setting the stage for the process to be very individual. And we Mm -hmm. we encourage people to, uh, you know, stay behind the eye mask, have the headphones on, and really let the experience itself be be the the guide, so mm-hmm. to speak. We're there to support and we're there to 
to assist if, if anything really challenging comes up, but we really want the guests to have their own experience and Mm -hmm. avoid any opportunity for us to distort their experience by interpreting it a certain way or, um, you know, I guess that's the best way to put it, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're not taking medicine too, though, as the facilitator. No, no. So that'd be like a big difference between like a shamanistic approach or one of the, and this approach, right? Right, right. Yeah. And that's a key, like, I I believe early in the company's history, I think back in 2015 or maybe 2017, that was part of the protocol. There would be a few facilitators who would dose, but there's, there were, there were leadership changes. Uh, Yeah. I don't know exactly how it unfolded, but, but as Mm -hmm. it stands now, yeah, all the facilitators are completely sober during Mm -hmm. the entire retreat. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, that was a deliberate decision and yeah, it works really well, I think too. I mean, I'm sure like uh, liability wise, it's really a good move. I'm curious though, as someone who's also taken psilocybin on his own and had mm-hmm. experiences, what do you think about that? Like, do you think something's lost by you not being in the same vibration or something? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. And I, you know, I might be able to answer it better if I had personal experience dosing with a guest or mm-hmm. in, in that setting. Um, I mean, I can say that when we're off retreat, all of the facilitators engage in their own practice of doing psilocybin in a similar manner that the retreat guests do it. So mm-hmm. it's not like we're completely disconnected from the experience itself. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess the way that I understand it in the time that I've been there, the facilitation team, we have the role of really setting the container. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is something that I'm sure your audience from listening to your podcast and, you know, things looking at it from like the masculine, feminine, alpha, omega perspective, the facilitation team, we are responsible for creating a solid container for the guest to experience and relax and surrender into receiving whatever experience they have over the course of the week. And so if the facilitation team is participating in what the guests are doing, whether it's during the dosing space or even, even if it would be off um, like at night after, after like one of the dosing days is over um, that would in a sense, in the, the way that I look at it, that's kind of a compromise of the 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 integrity of the container. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, yeah, it, but that that's, makes sense. that's that's how I understand. It. That's how I look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, can can you share some stuff that you've seen or experienced there? Because I am, I mean, I have my experience with psychedelics, and I've spoken mm-hmm. to a lot of uh, psychotherapists. I am really interested in maybe your approach based on the Jungian education. I don't know if all the other facilitators have similar backgrounds or there are other mm-hmm. kinds of psychotherapists, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not really sure what the question is, but I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. about that bridge that mm-hmm. we're speaking on. Well, I think that, so I guess at first I can say like the facilitation team, everybody comes from different backgrounds. And so that's really a huge benefit because we can learn a lot from each other. Um, obviously people being there, they have an affinity for this kind of work. And so there's a lot of eclectic backgrounds and people with all sorts of different experiences. Um, so I think that's a benefit for the guests to, to have access to different perspectives. It's not all Jungian. It's not all, you know, any specific framework. Um, but with regard to like interpreting the experiences that people have and what happens on retreat through the Jungian lens, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, without like going into specific examples, I think for me, the Jungian framework and this depth psychological approach in general really provides the theoretical frame and groundwork to normalize how bizarre the psychedelic experience can be. Mm-hmm. So for someone who is... I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example. You know, if if there's a guest who, let, let's say there's a guest who on their third dosing day, they're having like a complete 
the, the previous two doses, it's taken them a while to get familiar with the psychedelic experience because it was their first time doing it. But on the third dose, they're really comfortable and they have a sense of confidence going into their experience, you know, and they're, they have the right music playlist and they're just, they're in another dimension for the whole time and they come out of it and they have these extraordinary experiences to come from. It's really helped to, to talk about. It's really helpful for me as a facilitator to understand that no matter how bizarre or crazy or inexplicable it was, there's, there's a normalization to those things within the Jungian framework. Um, because I think Jung's one of main, one of Jung's main contributions and assertions was the reality of like the archetypal nature of consciousness and the depth of mystery that we're all individually connected to, um, you know, for, for someone to experience traveling to another dimension, it's like, yeah, this is, this is an ordinary part of reality that we just happen to be accessing through these states. So it's really helpful to normalize that for people. And Mm -hmm. it also, the Jungian perspective is also extremely non-directional. So it's very helpful to have this framework where we don't feel the need to interpret what the, what the guest experienced for them. Um, Mm -hmm. We can be okay to, to just be with their experience and listen to it and reflect back to them in like an active listening manner. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think the most important thing, what we really want to do is, is imbue, have, have the guest really experience like that, like a sense of almost like learning to ride a bike where you have Mm -hmm. that internal, like your body just intuitively picks up how to ride the bike with, with like a little bit of practice. It's it's kind of like a similar thing with the psychedelic experience, learning to navigate the immensity of the energy that can Hmm. come up in a way that's relevant. So, yeah. That's interesting because I, I, so Marie Louise von Franz, one of Jung's protégés Mm -hmm. who I've read a lot. I think you and I have talked about her. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate her writing. But one of the things I was reading, uh, maybe it was the last year, she often would reference, and this must have been like, I don't know, in the 30s or the 40s, so like almost a century ago, um, how uh, she would directly interpret dreams like and just say, like, this is how it is. And granted, I was reading an English translation, so maybe it reads different in German, but I was actually surprised, like, someone would come to the, her with, like, some bizarre dream imagery, and she's like, oh, well, this means that, and that means this, and this means you should be doing yeah. I was like, well, okay. And maybe yeah. maybe it just was different, you know, yeah. 80 years ago, but, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was actually surprised, maybe from my modern lens, that she yeah. was just telling people, this pig in your dream means your father's <laughs> yeah. something. I don't know, whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that was one of the, that was, I mean, I, I can't speak too much to that specifically, mm-hmm. but I do know that for example, when James Hillman became the director of the Young Institute in Zurich, mm-hmm. um, Hillman, I, have you read anything by Hillman, by the way? I've read a couple essays, but okay. Yeah. So he's like a, I mean, he's kind of like a, even within the Jungian community, kind of a, I don't know if renegade is the right word, but Hmm. that was one of his main criticisms when he took that position was that, you know, the analysis that's being taught is far too prescriptive and it's, it's, it's doing that too much. Hmm. Um, The reality is the meaning of a given symbol or image in someone's dream is for them to come to an understanding themselves. It's not for somebody else to tell them what it means. You know, the, the analyst can be a, a, a helpful part of that process by referencing some potentialities. But um, to say that this is what this symbol means is at least Hellman disagreed very strongly with that. Yeah. And it's actually like uh, one of the differences between, I think, spiritual frameworks and scientific frameworks is that spiritual frameworks usually have like definitive answers. Like if you look at a spiritual dream interpretation guide, it's always like, oh yeah, snakes mean this, your teeth fall out. It means someone's going to, it's like, it's like very, 
definitive, which is obviously the opposite of scientific. Like you don't mm -hmm. make claims that can't be proven or that haven't mm -hmm. gone through the scientific method. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, the definitive frameworks are do, do give you a sense of ease if you're unsure, as opposed to like, oh, well, science doesn't know yet. It's like, right. like even like this is maybe a silly example, but I have pretty bad eczema. I've been to a million dermatologists and they all say, well, we don't really know what causes eczema. But I, I saw a Chinese medicine doctor, which is kind of scientific, but Chinese medicine obviously isn't isn't based in the scientific method. But Chinese medicine doctors have a very clear answer to why I have eczema. And I was able to follow that framework and, and basically relieve my eczema. So I, I do appreciate the non-scientific because like science yeah. still doesn't have an answer for me. They're just, giving, right. they're just pumping me full of steroids. Right. Anyway, to, to bring this back to psychology, like, yeah, I think that's also why I'm like so interested in this Jungian psychedelic blend because all the shamanistic traditions do have an answer or like they'll definitively say ayahuasca is a grandmother spirit. Right. Wachuma is a grandfather. And when you're in that experience, like I'll, my third ayahuasca ceremony, I really like without a doubt felt I was speaking to an old woman. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because I heard enough hippies tell me she's a grandmother or that's <laughs> right. really what she is. Like she, right. there is some pattern in that plant right. in that molecule that is right. old lady. I don't know. Right. And there could be, we, we don't, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I, and I think, how would I say this? I think at a certain point, when you dig into these questions deeply enough, you arrive at, I mean, I, I found that I arrive at least at these fundamental questions of like, what does it mean to know something as mm -hmm. true? And that's kind of a, I mean, that's like a philosophical question that is, may not really ever be answered. But I think from a more practical perspective, I think it's important, you know, e even just pointing back to what I was describing with Myco and the work that we do there. Um, it's very easy for that tendency to interpret or, or give somebody a specific interpretation of what they're experiencing that can really easily metastasize and crystallize into, you know, narcissistic, cult-like uh, patterns and energies, for lack of a better word, at the moment that I'm sure you know. I mean, you know all about that. Yeah. Um, well, so actually, on that, I, I, I agree. And just to play devil's advocate a little bit, um, isn't even if the narrative is, is inaccurate or in, uh, unprovable, isn't, isn't there at least the potential for like, a lot of value of having a story like someone comes to you and I don't know, maybe this has happened and, and please disagree if, if this is incorrect, but like someone comes to you, they saw a bunch of symbols. Doesn't make sense. Maybe they're like, Oh my, it just means my brain is a mess or something. And you maybe even consciously construct, well, you could put this story together as well. You actually have, I don't know, some powerful moral lesson that they needed to hear. And mm -hmm. you're using the symbols of their, hallucination to mm -hmm. to confirm it mm -hmm. and maybe it's arbitrary but maybe it's more useful than being like well i don't know what any of this mm -hmm. means yeah yeah and that is like that is a good counterpoint and i guess maybe to be more specific i i guess the way that i look at it is what sort of power dynamics are being formed in whatever relationship whatever interaction is happening because mm -hmm. as soon as and i mean as coaches and therapists and people pe people in this work i mean people automatically project onto us and give put us on a pedestal that we have insight and ability and capabilities to help them in in certain ways um and that there's already a power dynamic that's created there almost just by definition and so one of the things that we also really emphasize at myco and is something that we talked a lot about in my training at Pacifica is recognizing these projections that people put onto us and be aware of how they influence us. Mm -hmm. um, and because it's, it's, it can be a very slippery slope, you know, I mean, and I think the world is full of coaches and therapists who, who haven't had that awareness and, they become hyperinflated, and next thing you know, they're 
they're running a cult Jonestown. and they're charging, <laughs> charging. Yeah. Right. They're, they're doing that or, or they're charging, you know, people $20,000 for, you know, to, to join their cult and work for mm -hmm. free and, you know, all, all the stuff that happens. So I guess it's just sensitivity to that, to being aware of that, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that the, the, the seeds of that can come from, you know, even just like a direct interpretation, you know, yeah. accumulated over years and years without any pushback. Yeah. But then looking again at like the shamanistic or spiritual frameworks of like, for most of human history, what we might now call personal development was done through a literal guru disciple relationship, whether mm -hmm. it was like Zen or, or medicine work, like Carlos Castaneda type stuff, or, you know, spirituality in India, like that was kind of the expectation and the model for transferring, you know, wisdom, let's say it's like you mm -hmm. pick someone, you literally choose to project perfection onto his persona or her persona and do whatever they say with the expectation that your servitude is leading you to something obviously in the modern era and maybe through all of history, but especially in the modern era that gets, that gets mm -hmm. pimped a lot. Mm -hmm. Like it gets, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's just a thought. I, actually, it also reminded me of, I have a friend who's a psychotherapist who, he was arguing that psychotherapists, because obviously there's a move nowadays where many psychotherapists, just like coaches or any influencer, can benefit their business by becoming an influencer, by having a huge audience, by telling their story, by having a lot of people listen to their words and ideas. But he was arguing to me that that's bad for therapy because part of therapy, and maybe it's his style of therapy, I don't know, is the client is supposed to have the opportunity to project, like maybe project their feelings of their father onto their mm -hmm. therapist and work it out mm -hmm. that way. Whereas if they know all about your story and your hero's journey, the way people market themselves online, that right. takes that away. Right. I'm curious what you think about that. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And it's something that I've thought about a lot as I'm, you know, in the early stages of my career and as a therapist and, and thinking about all those things. And to his point, that is, that is a very, um, it's kind of a hallmark of the traditional psychotherapeutic approach that is, um, I, I think rooted a lot in the psychoanalytic field of, you know, that started with Freud and this really, this really strong emphasis on as neutral neutrality and being as neutral as possible so mm -hmm. that, the patient can project whatever they project onto the therapist and the therapist can work with that. Mm -hmm. um, obviously if the patient knows a lot of personal details about the therapist, that's going to influence the projections that they put onto them. And so I, I don't know that I have a really strong answer. I, I'm, you know, I, I would say that I'm still relatively new and my experience of that has, has been limited. Um, I mean, I've, I've had the experience of, of people projecting onto me that I'm working with and I've been able to understand it, but, you know, not from a perspective of me being a social media influencer and getting clients from that way. You know, I was working in community mental health center in LA, so nobody knew I was just the random person that they got mm -hmm. assigned. Right. Um, I mean, the, the, I guess, the thought that I do have, I wonder, is it just a matter of the therapist being aware of that? I mean, because at the end of the day, it's really just dealing with what people are projecting onto us. And so whether the therapist is neutral, um, I mean, it's almost like the, the, it sounds like maybe the case that your friend is making is that the projections that somebody will project onto a neutral therapist, like a more traditional non-influencer are more important, or maybe they're a higher quality projection, like quote unquote, therapeutically than a mm -hmm. projection of somebody who, you know, follows this therapist on Instagram and sets up an appointment with them through Instagram and then starts working with them as a therapist knows about this therapist's personal life and all this stuff. I mean, I, I think there are there there is something to be said about maintaining a boundary and and not self-disclosing everything um but 
even in the even in psychotherapy, like even in school, learning about the ethic, law and ethics, and it's by no means black and white. It's it's a, it's a very gray area, for, even for people who are in the field mm-hmm. writing and enforcing the rules. So, I guess just to finish that thought, I don't. I don't know that one is better than the other. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know if the projections are one of one are more therapeutically useful than another because I mean, to a certain degree in my mind, if a client is projecting, if a client knows about my story and is looking up to me and projecting onto me as someone that I, that they want to be um, or whatever the case is, um, a skilled therapist will be able to recognize that and will be able to work with that therapeutically. And so, yeah, I don't know that there's a, a clear answer, but yeah. 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 Cause it's just a question. Actually it's uh, one of the reasons I chose not to get a master's in psychology. It was actually from a family friend who's my parents age who had an MFT and she was saying something like, I mean, one, she was kind of advising me not to in that it puts a lot of like legal constraints on you. I think that was m- one of her, one of her reasons for her advice, but also like, um, she said something, I don't remember exact the words, but like you, a therapist cannot become friends with their client and like that you cannot talk to them outside of sessions or something like that. Where at the time I was, I was new to coaching. This is maybe 10 years ago. And I was already becoming friends with all of my clients. I was like, well, mm-hmm. I would have, I mean, I don't even know how to do that. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's like a very different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know who's to say which one is, is actually better because even mm-hmm. psychology is a relatively new field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say the, the experience that I have, because I think what can happen is it, it can get in the way of therapeutic work. You know, if there's a relationship that's forming that's more along the lines of a friendship, there are, I mean, pretty obvious ways that that can interfere with really deep, meaningful therapeutic work because, you know, there's all sorts of dynamics that can come up with a friend that are not helpful in the therapeutic relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. not wanting to hurt their feelings or wanting to say something that's you know, it's going to be hurtful for them to hear, even if they might need to hear it. And I think, you know, some people would argue, well, like that's what a real friend would do um, is to be able to have those hard conversations with people. But would a real friend charge that person $150 an hour to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, no, yeah. the, the friend would do that, you know, for free because that's what friendship is. And so there's, again, there's like another gray, really kind of vague boundary line between what it means to be a professional, a a helping professional, whether it's a coach or a therapist or whatever, and just a friend. And so, yeah, that is something I've thought like maybe in a cynical way about personal development. And you and I have maybe even spoke about this a long time ago. It's like a lot of personal development. One is like an attempt to complete your childhood or fill in gaps, or there's many ways to view it. I've also framed it as like a, just a form of entertainment when you don't have your immediate survival needs met. What do you do but work on the character, your avatar through reality if you want. Um, but then it's also like a lot of what we seek is trying to recreate what maybe pre-civilization tribal life was like. Like you had your war buddies and that was your peer coach. And then there was a chief or a literal shaman who you gave all the guru worship to because he proved that he's the best person to tell everyone how to live or something. And then now we have a global society where most people interact with people who they don't know intimately. And that's just the the nature of society. And maybe it's why we have to transition. But there's also this pull, I think, on both ends of a therapeutic relationship for the guru disciple dynamics. I, 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 my, the- my belief is at least mm-hmm. like those dynamics are kind of wired into us. Those are archetypal actually to see, mm-hmm. to worship gurus and to be a guru when everyone's worshiping you. And, and, you know, I think that's part of human nature perhaps. Definitely. And there's a book, it's, it's right on my shelf. It's called Guru, Psychotherapist and Self. And it's about this exact topic hmm. um, that I haven't read yet, but it's making me think of like, every time I look at my bookshelf, I'm like, man, that's, I gotta, I gotta crack that one open. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's about like this exact topic because it's, it's, uh, 
yeah, I mean, what is the therapeutic relationship other than just a, a kind of Western, um, modification or interpretation of like you described, like the, the monk and the spiritual seeker Mm -hmm. in India 3000 years ago. It's, it's, it's the same fundamental thing, essentially, um, just in different historical context. Yeah. And, and it has been also been my hot take on cults, which I, I, I get a lot of shit for in, the, in my, my personal experience. And I think this is the experience of most people who've been in cults is like, you will never feel as connected to a community as in a cult. You just won't. And I, I have nice groups of friends and I've been around nice, wholesome, welcoming communities, but they don't even come close. Like a cult is like, the best kind of family other than all the manipulation, like on, on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sticking by that. Um, People give you shit okay. for that. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, just the fact that I speak about cults in a not totally negative way um, and say that I, I, I did gain a lot from my cult. And honestly, as much as I love my friends and my family and everything, I still haven't found that level of connection. Yeah. And I don't think, and I don't think it's even that cynical to say I won't, ever again because there's something about everyone being brainwashed together that gives you a level of intimate a group intimacy that i think only pre-civilization tribes had Mm -hmm. which is why we why the cult feels so welcoming Mm -hmm. if you end up Mm -hmm. actually getting through the door yeah yeah i mean i uh i mean i've been fortunate enough to experience to be part of a group of friends that it's not an official organization, but to, to, to have a taste of what you're describing. I mean, I know exactly what you mean. And it's, you know, it like, it's almost like the group resonance, like feeds back onto Mm -hmm. itself. And it just, it's like a, it's like a perpetuating, like good vibes. Like we're all connected. Um, And and I would argue there's something different about everyone it's like a group of friends where it's like let's say an egalitarian group you could be really on the same page and have your you know personal culture and inside jokes and stuff but i think when you're all you have that and you're all bowing to the same authority whether it's a person or an ideology Mm -hmm. it's a little bit different because you know if you have a disagreement with close friends then you have a disagreement between peers but there's not really like an overarching deity or guru or belief system to put you on the same side, so to speak, or to police you in the mm. same way. Anyway, it's not to go too far on this tangent. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, Guru Disciple, I'm actually going to pick up that book. Um, I want to ask you also about the esoteric side because, you know, even further in the direction of mysticism than Jung was Reich. I don't know if you're familiar with any of his writing or work. I, I haven't. No, I'm not. I, I know the name and I'm. I'm, I'm sure I'm familiar with some of his ideas, but I haven't written or read anything that he's written. Yeah. Well, anyway, basically he was a, I think a contemporary of Jung. He was a student mm-hmm. of Freud. He went in a different direction going into like energy and stuff. And this was at a time when even Freud's work was, was seen as pseudoscience or like it wasn't a hard science, et cetera. Um, but I'm also, you know, you, you, you see Reich more spoken about in the spiritual world because he speaks about energy. He speaks about, accumulating energy in your cells, organs and, and whatnot. And this kind of, uh, framework, which is obviously not scientific can also be validated in psychedelic experiences where people very clearly feel energy flowing or something entering them from the cosmos or, or whatever. And, um, curious if you have any thoughts on the energy flow esoteric side that maybe comes up in psychedelics with psychedelics. I don't know that. Hmm. Well, uh, to maybe ground this a little more. So Mm -hmm. very often people on different, different medicines, people will say, I I can see energy in a way I didn't, or like I can see auras. And I I remember even specifically on LSD, there's like a certain kind of vision I get where I can, I, 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 well, very clearly, visually, I can see energy flowing underneath people's skin. And I don't know if I'm like perceiving lymph or blood moving in a way that my nor- my eyes can't mm-hmm. normally see or whatever. But it's like so, it's so concrete and obvious that it's not just right. in my head. It's like, I'll see the energy moving in a rock slowly, but in a person quickly, in a dog, yeah. I don't know. Um, and maybe this doesn't come up in your therapy work, but I wanted to bring yeah. it up, I guess. Yeah. I, I guess what what comes up for me is... 
there's a the way that I see it, there's a fundamental like I think a lot of what's happening in the current in the current moment around psychedelic work, the advent of spiritual energetic kind of coaching and this the, the popular the rising popularity of of these sorts of things. It's almost like because I've never really like talked about this, so I don't know where where to start necessarily. But I guess what comes up for me is like my understanding of the psychedelic experience, and this is largely informed by the Jungian perspective, is that there's a boundary between what Jung called the conscious mind, not even the conscious mind really, but the ego the realm of consciousness within the psyche and then the unconscious, which is everything else. There's a boundary between those two realms, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And in the psychedelic state, that boundary is softened and becomes more permeable or weakened, or it retracts altogether, you know, in some cases. And so you have this uprush of, unconscious content, the complexes, the imagery, the symbolism, the archetypal energy, all this stuff coming into consciousness. And I think, I think energy and the, the, the more esoteric things, I think all of that, whatever it is, I think it's a, it's a real, it's a, it's a, it's a concrete aspect of reality. It's just that in ordinary human consciousness, it's just not something that the majority of people are naturally tuned into. Um, and so when people have those experiences on retreat where they feel, you know, they're connected to a tree or something, or they're feeling the flow of, you know, there's a lightning bolt, it's storming and there's a lightning bolt and they, it like, it lands on their soul or whatever, you know, th those sorts of feelings and those sorts of experiences. Like I think those are kind of, those are like ordinary experiences. It's just that they seem extraordinary because, because like I said, the majority of human beings are, are the shape of our consciousness doesn't, include those by default but for people maybe mm -hmm. like reich and young and people who are like quote-unquote mystics i mean my my I, my hunch is that there's a quality of like a human nervous system that can just be more sensitive to these sorts of phenomena and there's variability in that 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 sensitivity just like there's variability in height and strength and mm -hmm. hair color and you know, every other quality of being human, you know, there's, there's clearly a, a sensitivity and a, an ability for people to connect into these esoteric realms that are, they just, they just are wired a little bit differently that gives them access to it. I, I hope that in our lifetime, science kinds of finds a, a way to, um, I don't know, codify this a little bit. Cause I'm thinking now, obviously these are anecdotes, but Everyone I know who's really sensitive to these things, and I think not in a crazy way, like they can really pick up on things that maybe prove to be true or whatever. They also pick up on things that are not true. It's like they don't they don't miss the the false negatives of the the common person. Or I might be saying this differently, but they they end up taking in a lot of uh, false positives. Like they believe in things that are like, come on, like, mm -hmm. and it seems to go together. And and I guess I'm sure there are spiritual traditions where there's some way of training when you open your perception, you also know how to filter properly at the same time. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, because even yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, well, go but, ahead. Well, I was just going to say with my, with the, like this, the semi esoteric study I've done around sexuality, there are, there are things that I, I know to be true. You can pick up, you can read a person's body in a way that seemed magical to me before, but it's really just learning how to pick up on certain cues and, mm. and know how to, um, make meaning from like a feeling you might get that you can't explain immediately. Mm -hmm. But then if you practice it and train it, you realize, oh, this is actually true a hundred percent of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I was going to say. Yeah. I think that's a really, I think that's a really good point. Like I hope, I also hope that we can 
we can make progress in this area that you're describing, like from a scientific point of view. I think that um, what I was going to say earlier when you were mentioning like, you know, this, the idea of this increased aperture, I think what a lot of people, what might get lost is like, yeah, people are more sensitive. They can, an increased aperture allows somebody to receive more information when they're working with someone, so to speak. But I think I would also argue that an increased aperture increases the potential for them to project what's inside of them onto the environment, because that's also happening at the same time um, with, with everybody. There's a quote that I love. I forget. I don't know who said it, but it's, it, it, it might even be a young quote, but it's it's like we don't see reality as it is; we see it as we are, and that's that's that really lands for me when I read it. And so I think that kind of speaks to what you mentioned about people who are really sensitive. They can also hold really strong beliefs or hold specific views about the world that are, you know, unconventional or may not really make a lot of sense. I think. I think that might be part of it too. Um, yeah. Cause even in a non-esoteric sense, like people who are re- like a lot of conspiracy theories have kind of been proven right in the last few years. But the problem is the people who really champion them also believe in a lot of nonsense. Like you never see someone who's into one conspiracy theory. They're always like right. a conspiracy theorist usually. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's like right. uh, it's, someone's making an error in in a direction or or another usually. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, this whole, I mean, I can see like, this is a, this is another like potential rabbit hole tangent, but um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, John Verveke and yeah, his, I've listened to some of his lectures. I I maybe listened to the the meaning crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he taught, this is, this is his kind of what he's talking about. Um, and there's uh, a, one of my one of my facilitator friends just sent me a video of him and Ian McGilchrist and Daniel Schmattenberger. I think that's how his last name is. They did a joint like three hour convo. Oh, cool! Uh, at Oxford, like recently, and so yeah, please I send that to me because I also started Ian McGilchrist's book. I made it through the introduction and then I, I put it down. But <laughs> I'm gonna get <laughs> the back. Same to thing it. happened to me. The the master and his emissary. Yeah. Yeah, it's um yeah, the neuroscience is it's not uh yeah, it's not it's not like my native language, so it's it's hard to it's hard it was harder for me to get through that, but I want to pick it back up at some point for sure. Sorry, what were you saying about their their lecture together? Um it just I, it made me think of what we're talking about, like this idea of truth finding and truth mm-hmm. seeking and like what is real and what is is there a difference between what is real and what is meaningful mm-hmm. in an individual life? And how does that factor into all of the, all of the crises that we're collectively experiencing and conspiracy theories and what is yeah. actually going on in the world right now? Yeah. Yeah. Cause in a totally, are you familiar with Krasipsky by any chance? Uh, He's the founder of General Semantics. I think he was a contemporary of Jung, but I don't think they they collaborated or anything. Um, but you know, his view is that all problems come from the fact that humans can abstract reality. All human problems, because like obviously that's what allowed allows us to plan for the future and make meaning from things and like you know create frameworks and principles. But also, when you abstract something, you're taking away details. So like racism is obviously an abstraction treating all these individuals as having the same qualities or, you know, I mean, a lot of what's going on in politics are misabstractions. Um, uh, but you all, the brain also can't not, like if you don't abstract things, it's kind of like taking a heroic dose of psilocybin where you're getting everything at once and nothing makes sense mm-hmm. because like you mm-hmm. need to put something in a box. Mm-hmm. And then, which is why I was asking you earlier about like, you kind of need a narrative. Like some people obviously have very limiting narratives about themselves and their lives, but they also need a narrative. I think right. it's like to, to, right. to be, otherwise you're like, you're taking every single stimulus as a unique thing, which would overload your brain and make it impossible to plan your life or something. Right. 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 Yeah. That's, that's absolutely true. And it was, as you were saying that I was thinking, well, what is the narrative that we, that we, you know, 
are proponents of or encourage, like when we're on retreats working with people. Um, and I would say that it's something like you are the source of the transformation and the meaning that you're seeking. And that may or may not make sense, but just stick with the process and, you know, ask whatever questions that come up for you. And, you know, we'll try to, we'll try to, we'll, we'll be there to, to support you through that. Um, so it's almost like maybe in some way, and I guess I'm speaking for myself, you know, like the facilitation team, everybody, like I said, everybody has their own perspective. And, um, so speaking for myself, when I'm working with guests on retreat, that's how I'm generally approaching it because it's about them. It's about, it's not about what I think. It's not about my interpretation of their experience necessarily. It's about what's meaningful for them and what's going to be helpful for them. And so maybe the story is that, you know, yes, there is a story and we all need, and we need that narrative. We need that structure. Um, but you're the author and I don't have anything for you in that sense. Um, yeah, it's tricky. It's, it's really hard. It's, 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 it's a hard tightrope to walk. For yeah. Sure. I think what I'm is also like kind of nascent theories for me, but like I'm recognizing or my, my newer belief system is that every narrative has a trade-off like even the one that you shared, which I think is probably the best thing in a therapeutic setting of like really trying not to be gurus, like really trying not to give them a map. It also has, it also has negatives, right? Like some people want the map, like some people would rather have the priest right. or guru tell them because it's actually a lot of, yeah, it's Everything. like, a, it's a lot of pressure sometimes where it's like, it's like, oh, it's all like, I'm the author. Like now I have to write it though. Like can't right. someone just write it for me and I'll be happy to live it, which I do think deep down, even though in the West, we, we live in a very pro-individualist culture. I think Western culture is a little bit too much in that direction, which has led to a lot of the meaning crises in people mm -hmm. that in a hyper-conservative society 2000 years ago, they didn't have that problem. They had different problems, mm -hmm. but they didn't have that problem. And actually, I think it was Jung who, I, I, yeah, I read something by Jung a while ago when he went to visit um, tribes in the Amazon and he was looking at their, you know, so-called primitive spirituality of like, I think we might've even talked about this last time you came on of how the primitive guy didn't have neuroses. He had a spell cast on him and the, the witch doctor removed the spell. And even though we, we look at it and it's like, oh, that's all false. The narrative worked and the guy didn't have the affliction anymore. Mm -hmm. Like he just believed it. Whereas like in the West, mm -hmm. someone with the same exact symptoms labeled as a neurosis would have to go through years of therapy to like heal their neurosis rather right. than like shake a rattle and the spell is gone kind of, and you know, obviously placebo doesn't apply to every problem, but like, right. He was arguing right. it does with some things. Right. Right. Yeah. It's uh, I mean that, that whole, like c comparing those two fields, like Western, the Western experience versus the 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 experience in a place like the amazon is i mean that's also very interesting i mean and it came up a lot in my thesis research because i was looking at i was trying to um use depth psychology to better understand the role of music in the psychedelic experience because music plays a very important role um, and there's a lot of fascinating neuroscience that's looking at what happens when music is being listened to in a psychedelic experience, but there's not really a, we don't, we still don't really have an understanding of what's happening phenomenologically or from a subjective point of view. Um, so I was trying to use depth psychology to see if there was anything that might contribute to that. And part of the research, I was looking at these ancient cultures, um, the Shipibo tribe in Amazon was the, there's a, there's a really great book, um, and you know, they consider they're called Ikados and they're the songs and the whistles and the melodies that the shaman uses. Um, they view them as spells and they consider them as spells and the training, a lot of the training 
that the shaman goes through is they work with the medicine and they claim that the plants teach them their songs and they also inherit them from their shamans that they're learning from and they, they develop their own, but you know, that, that's the, this, the idea that someone would learn to sing a song and that would cast a spell that can heal somebody's, you know, toxic shame that they've had in their body for their whole life is a completely I mean, I remember I was sharing this bit of research with my mom when I was home for the holidays, you know, she just like didn't even know how to respond because it's just so far removed from like ordinary Western uh, conception of reality. But I also have another friend who has done sessions uh, with a shaman with ayahuasca. And the way that he described it was that the way that she was whistling and singing when she was working with him, it was like a scalpel that was carving away the shame that was in his psyche and his embodied psyche. And it was like one of the most profound things he's ever experienced. And so what, what do we make of that? What, what do we make of that is, is kind of the open question. Um, I have had like, I've only done a few ayahuasca ceremonies, but I've had that kind of experience and I would actually bridge it to like, any non-esoteric like if you're at a concert and like everyone's yeah. into it like you all get into the same mood like right. if you're if, if you're rocking out to whatever song and you see yeah. someone else you don't know them you kind of know what they feel like like it's kind yeah. of like a group hypnosis like you Absolutely. all feel which Absolutely. to me is you know not that many degrees away perhaps from like the ikaro healing thing Absolutely. it's like you know, obviously we know like music changes our mood if we like, if we get into a certain tune and it's actually reminding me, I'm going to try to find the name of the person because I think you'd find it interesting. I saw a lecture by this guy. I think he was a musician, but he was speaking about like kind of what you're talking about. And one of the things he shared was how the, the mating songs of blue whales is if you speed it up, and maybe you know this already, but it's, if you speed it up, it comes out to exactly the same sound as the mating song of nightingales. It's like night or wow. it was a bird and a whale. I think it was nightingales and blue whales, but like the only difference was the frequency and speed was lower. But if you just like, if you just turned up the RPMs, they sound identical, which was like, wow, That's like there's something extraordinary. That's yeah. fascinating. I didn't know that because yeah, you figure, I mean, this is now trying to apply a Jungian lens to this, like evolutionarily, right. They like nightingales and whales split. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know. I don't even know what word like millions of years ago, I guess. But there was something they had in common that carried mm -hmm. along to their mating songs, mm -hmm. you know, at this point of evolution. Yeah, it's just fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Music and sound are, uh, in my opinion, I think they're an integral part of, you know, the whole conversation we've been having in a certain sense mm -hmm. and all of these fields combined. I think there's something about music and the way that sound affects the nervous, the human nervous system. And kind of demonstrably the rest of the animal kingdom as well. You know, there's, I mean, to your point about whales and birds and all sorts of different animals using sound to communicate and express information with each other is, you know, it's, it's obvious. Um, the, the last thing that I might add to this is I was actually having a conversation with, um, I think he's been on your show, Dave Burns. I think you've oh, talked yeah. to him. Yeah, yeah. And we were having a conversation and he, he mentioned this idea. I can't remember if it was one of his friends that, that, you know, brought it to him or what, but looking at this conversation about like Amazonian and kind of, I don't want to use the word primitive um, indigenous is probably better uh, cultures with their traditions of using psychedelic medicine and the music and all these things. And, the analogy of as, as psychotherapy itself and psychology is the same thing in a different form because it's talking. It's, it's, it's a talking, like Freud called it the talking cure, but what are words, but just sounds and the words that we use in the language, the way that we communicate has its own sense of musicality. And there's a, there are inflections and there's information that's communicated in the sounds that we use to speak 
and listen in talk therapy. And so th- that was an interesting connection that he made. And, hmm. um, you know, it's, it's almost like, I think the way that he described it was psychotherapy as a genre of music hmm. in the same way that Ikados are a genre of, of healing. Like it's almost like genres of healing. Yeah in connected by different shapes and varieties of sound and vibration. That would also be interesting as like a scientific bridging study. If someone could somehow view the tonality, maybe take the content away from what a therapist is saying and note if there's like something with tonality, I bet that, that actually that study could probably done be done easily. Just take the words out and, and match the, the tones mm-hmm. and the pitch and the cadence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause obviously some people are more pleasant to listen to than others, mm-hmm. even if they're saying brilliant things, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating. What was your, what was your thesis on? Like what was the, the argument you were making or the main point? So I was using, um, yeah, like I said, I was using depth psychology and my, I guess what I was trying to do was, I mean, interestingly enough, my whole thesis was inspired by one of the profound psychedelic experiences that I personally had that involved music. And so it was basically trying to integrate and process that experience through writing the thesis. And I guess what I was coming, the the main point that I came with was that from a practical therapeutic level, we don't really know because it's, it's been demonstrated that, the right music used therapeutically in a psychedelic therapy session, for example, can be just as impactful is independently impactful to the experience compared to the dose of the psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. Interesting. Um, So what that, I mean, maybe to say that another way is that they were able to identify ways that people, people demonstrated market improvements based on what they listened to in addition to the experience of and the dosage of the mushroom itself so they were kind of they were able to independently verify that there's something going on with what music is being played that has a unique contribution to the healing effect of their overall session that being said doing fmri studies and looking at what's happening in the brain, it doesn't really indicate what music is going to be right for the right person. We can just say that these things are happening, but it doesn't really give any guidance or insight onto what is going to work for a given person. Because in that study, there were also people who hated the music and it was they had a completely different experience. And so I tried to use depth psychology, um, looking at the role of music as kind of an archetypal um, I don't really know the right word for it, but noting the connection between music and the idea of the archetype in the sense that music can't really be defined. Music is really defined by the lens that you're looking at it through, you know, to a physicist music is, frequency waves in the air um you know to a to a composer it's something different to an audience to the person listening to it it's something different what music is and why it affects us so deeply i feel like i'm kind of rambling i uh, no, no, i mean i think I'm it's interesting i'm on the thread um and i guess that to me that's connected to archetype because Maybe there's there's a better there's I know there's a better way to, to well, articulate this and I mean I, don't, I mean it's just making me think of at least one example of like music isn't random like that's actually the difference between signal and noise in the way that these certain archetypal character profiles are not random like you'll see them common across cultures whereas like four the four beat structure right it's universal it's like why isn't right. there a five beat bar you know it just right. isn't right. Like, right. it just doesn't fit. Like why does rhyming sound good and and non-rhyming does it's like something about the it's not random which which yeah i mean is the essence of archetypes at least that's what i've always gotten from young is like there's something so deep that maybe can be explained with evolution which is why the whale and the nightingale have the same 
pattern that yeah it is just like embedded in us like yeah. genetically perhaps. yeah and i think right and so one of the questions with like music and psychedelic therapy is how to how to grasp that insight or that mm-hmm. proposition that you just mentioned yeah and and i think what what i what i eventually arrived at was yeah assuming like if we're going to work with this model that the psyche is archetypally structured and the thing with archetypes is that they're both subject and object at the same time so it's kind of like the paradox of of experience embedded at every level um we have listening to the right music in the psychedelic state can can activate feelings and not not just feelings but the archetypal processes that the feelings come from themselves mm-hmm. That's maybe an explanation within this model of of why music is so impactful in a psychedelic mm-hmm. experience. And then I think it maybe, I don't know if this is will ever turn out to be true, but maybe that can point us in the right direction of better understanding how to use specific music for specific conditions, specific personality types. Who mm-hmm. knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you, I hope you do end up doing more research on this. I think it's very fascinating. There's probably a lot of things to pull on, like why they say Mozart is good for babies or like, um, Kirtan kind of puts you in a certain state. If you've ever, it's just like you're repeating the same words over and over again, but there's something about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Cool, man. It's it's super fun talking to you as always. Uh, we should do it more frequently. Um, people can find you at jamescalpson.com. Yes, James Calpson. I finally, I'm finally like, I have my website. It's, it's almost, it's like 99% done. I'm cool. like, I'm, I have a newsletter called Masculinity in Depth that is, I've posted a few things on Substack already, but I'm, I'm bringing it all to my website. So mm-hmm. I'm not doing Substack. I'm just going to have a newsletter from my website. Um, but yeah, I'm, I want to write about all of these things that we've talked about and, you know, clarify my thinking and put them out into the world. So cool, people man. can subscribe to that. And, um, and yeah. if they're interested in psychedelic therapy with you, they can find that through, uh, it's all. Website. Yeah. Yep. They can reach me cool. there. Yep. Awesome, man. Yeah. All right. Great talking to you, man. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. Always good to chat too.